Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Visual Decay On a dreary and bitter day in late autumn, Rooney watched her mother die. The next morning, she went to the city records building to pick up her mother's death certificate. And then she walked next door to the courthouse and filed for a divorce from her husband. Of course, it wasn't how Rooney hoped things would unfold. None of this was what she wanted. She was just doing what needed to be done. For seven months, Rooney had spent her days sitting in her mother's room at the assisted living home. Sometimes they would talk, but more often they were silent. Rooney held her mother's hands, She hummed along to the music playing on her old CD player. Ever since they'd gotten the test results back in April, Rooney had wanted to spend as much time as she could with her mom, because she knew it would eventually end. That would have been hard enough on its own, but just three weeks after the diagnosis, Rooney had discovered Dalton was cheating. He had left his phone on the counter one evening when he went upstairs to take a shower. Rooney had heard it buzz, and while she typically refrained from snooping, she found herself walking over and peeking at the little notification bubble on the screen. It was a less-than-subtle text from Whitney Cumberland, a woman Dalton had hired that summer to work at Neptune, their restaurant. The restaurant Rooney had invested years of her life in. And of course, Dalton had invested plenty too. The two of them had spent countless hours meticulously crafting the menu, searching for unique wine and beverage selections, and designing an atmosphere that gave people an impeccable dining experience. The fact that the restaurant they built together would serve as the conduit to Dalton's infidelity, made the betrayal even worse. At first, Rooney felt like flying into a rage, running upstairs and confronting him while he showered. But instead, she just set the phone on the counter and sat back down on the couch. The following morning, she went to visit her mother. They played gin rummy, 
and as Rooney dealt the cards, her mom looked up at her and asked how Dalton was doing. He's good, Rooney said. And in that moment, she subconsciously decided that she was going to pretend she didn't know. There were times when she considered unburdening herself to her mother, but she wasn't always sure how helpful the response would be. Between the tumor and the drugs, her mom's input wasn't always easy to follow. One evening, when Rooney was preparing to leave, her mother looked at her with a curious smile and said, Don't forget, I'll see you in the valley. Rooney had no idea what she was talking about. Okay, Mom, that sounds good, she said, and left the room. For months, she carried on with the facade. At times, she would ask herself, why? Why did she act like she was unaware? And why didn't she trust her own mother enough to confide in her? On some level, she suspected the reason she didn't confront Dalton was because, in a way, she feared him. Though she would never say so publicly. After all, he had never laid a hand on her. But he didn't like being challenged. And he could be spiteful. She knew she was only delaying the inevitable. But Rooney didn't feel capable of facing Dalton's unpredictable response while tending to her mother's quickly declining health. It was simpler just to feign naivety, to let her mom live out her last days, believing her only child was in a gratifying and faithful marriage. But as soon as her mother was gone, she knew it was time to face the hardship of leaving Dalton. When she finally did confront him, he took it better than she expected. He didn't get aggressive or yell. He just laid his head in his hands and apologized profusely. It wasn't until well into the process, when a judge decided that Dalton would have to pay Rooney out for her share of Neptune and part with a considerable amount of their savings, that Dalton became cold and abrasive toward her. When it was all over, Rooney felt like she needed more than just a fresh start. She felt like she needed a whole new life. She left Boston and moved to a small town in Connecticut called Mystic. It was late February when she arrived, and Rooney immediately found the snow-covered port town to be charming. She rented a second-story apartment just off the town's main street, taking frequent walks along the Mystic River and breathing in the salty aroma of the ocean. She enjoyed being there, but she felt like she needed more than just a place to be. She needed something to do as well. Without a restaurant to manage or an ailing mother to care for, she felt restless and complacent. On one of her walks, as she passed Mystic Pizza, a local landmark ever since the movie came out, she spotted a theater on the other side of the street. She'd passed it before, but had never really taken the time to look at it. It was quaint, she thought, dilapidated but serviceable. Its foyer had a tall white canopy above it, with the words 
courtside cinema painted on its face. Underneath hung the marquee. It didn't advertise any upcoming showtimes, but it did hold a row of bold black letters, reading, For Sale. Rooney could also see a piece of paper taped to the box office window. She walked across the street and read it. It provided some details about the theater, as well as the asking price. Portside Cinema contained two auditoriums, both small, holding only 75 seats. It was listed for $140,000, which, while it may not have been cheap, still seemed to Rooney like a rather reasonable price for a movie theater. At the bottom of the sheet, a phone number was listed. Prospective buyers, please call, it said. Rooney pulled out her phone and shot a photo of the flyer. She knew that buying the theater was a foolish idea. But for the rest of the day, she asked herself, exactly how foolish? It was true that she had never run a theater, or even worked in one but she had a wealth of experience in the service industry. And she loved movies. She always had. Plus, she did have the money. She spent the weekend researching theater ownership. More than anything, she wished she could ask her mother for advice. She still felt ashamed for withholding the failure of her marriage from her mom. Although... It was far from the only time she withheld something from her. She had always been reluctant to admit when she was struggling with something. Not because she was afraid of being admonished. Her mother was graceful with feedback. Usually. Rooney just hated the thought of declaring that some aspect of her life was unmanageable. She wanted to appear to the world as someone who was navigating life with a steady hand someone who could take things in stride. And in truth, she was about as stable and self-reliant as they come. Much of her success had been of her own making. But in her effort to conceal her vulnerabilities, she bottled up a lot of other stuff, too. Like shame. And in the aftermath of the divorce, there was a lot of shame. She was simultaneously ashamed that she couldn't make her marriage work and ashamed that she hadn't left her husband sooner. But she couldn't go back and change what had happened. And she couldn't ask her mom for guidance. Whether or not to buy the theater was a decision she would have to make alone. She told herself to be safe and reasonable. After all, she could afford the theater, sure but how much would renovations cost? And even if she could get it up and running, who's to say she could keep it in business in a town that small? But despite all her doubts, Rooney knew she wanted to buy it. Not only because it would give her something to devote herself to, but because it, like her, was in need of a rebirth. The theater was something she could make anew, while she made herself anew. And it would be a creation all her own, free of the influence or scrutiny 
of anyone else. On Monday morning, she called the number on the flyer and spoke to the realtor. Two months later, she closed on the property, and Portside Cinema was officially hers. It needed roughly $70,000 in renovations, which Rooney immediately began work on. She repainted the exterior, reupholstered the seats with soft red fabric, and practically gutted the entire lobby. Everything she could do herself, she did, but there was still a lot she needed help with. She met a number of people who became integral to the remodel process, the most notable being Clyde Paddocky. Clyde was a local handyman who also happened to have a comprehensive understanding of film and projectors. The theater held two 35mm film projectors. One of them was in nearly working condition. The other was in complete disrepair. Rooney decided to restore the salvageable projector and had the unfixable one replaced with a more modern digital projector. When she determined what parts she needed to get the projectors up and running, Clyde was able not only to source them for an extremely fair price, he was able to install them himself as well. Although film projectors had largely been obsolete for decades, Rooney was enthralled with the thought of screening old movies on film, especially since the theater had come with several large boxes of film reels. One afternoon, as Rooney and Clyde looked through some of the old film reels, he pulled one out and showed her how to thread the film into the projector. It was Dario Argento's late 70s masterpiece, Suspiria. So, what do you plan on playing opening night? Clyde asked her. I'm not sure, Rooney said. I'd love to play this. Or maybe one of Cronenberg or Lynch's films. I'm a fan of that creepy, weird stuff. I'm just not sure how the local audiences would take to it. Well, Clyde said, if you like eerie experimental films, you should check out Teresa Valor's work. It's incredible. And also rather unsettling. He knelt down and resumed sifting through the boxes of film. I'm surprised, he said. A lot of these are still in pretty good condition. Really? Rooney asked. Oh yeah, Clyde told her. Film reels are prone to all kinds of visual decay. They're just like people. Sometimes they fade, gradually becoming less vibrant. Other times they grow brittle and crack. But none of them last forever. Rooney's arms fell to her side and she grew silent, remembering the final weeks of her mother's life. What is it? Clyde asked. Nothing, Rooney said. It's just my mom. She died late last year. And it's, well, it's still on my mind a lot, that's for sure. She was a bit shocked at herself for telling him. She didn't often talk about her reasons for wanting a fresh start and mystic. But she supposed she felt safe sharing it with Clyde. God, I'm so sorry, Clyde said, shaking his head. I don't even know what I was rambling on about. It's all right, 
really, Rooney said. Clyde got to his feet, and the two of them went down to the third row to watch the rest of Suspiria. In late July, Rooney hosted Portside Cinema's official reopening. She offered viewers a riveting and timeless double feature, playing Tarkovsky's Solaris and the 1973 classic Don't Look Now. At the newly remodeled concession stand, Rooney sold pretzels and lobster rolls and funnel cakes, each with her own gourmet spin. Much to her surprise, the turnout was excellent. Every seat was filled all night long. It seemed that the locals were heartened by the fact that Rooney had chosen to restore Portside Cinema to its former glory, rather than tear it down and build a gas station. When the first showing began, and the lobby cleared, Rooney heard static crackling on the intercom. The intercom was one of the theater's more amusing features. It consisted of boxy plastic speakers that were probably once white but had long since faded to a pale yellow color, mounted on walls in several of the theater's rooms. There were two backstage, one in the projection booth, and one in the lobby behind the concession stand. They served the apparent purpose of allowing personnel in various parts of the theater to communicate with each other. The technology had become outdated when everyone began carrying smartphones around with them. But considering that it still worked, Rooney had decided not to tear it out. In fact, she kind of liked it. She found it endearing in a nostalgic sort of way. As she looked at the archaic device, she heard Clyde's voice come hissing through. I think I just might need one of those lobster rolls, he said. Rooney smiled to herself. She prepared a lobster roll on a paper plate and brought it up to the projection booth. When she got inside, she handed the plate to Clyde, whom she'd put in charge of running the projector. Thank you, he said excitedly. Rooney walked over and peeked at the audience through the port window. Not bad, huh? Clyde said. Not bad at all, Rooney replied. The following screenings were equally successful, and soon it was clear that Rooney had built a flourishing business. Mystic's only newspaper even ran a story about her, quote, triumphant reopening. There were still times when she struggled, though. She often found that she felt empty despite her success. She had hoped reviving the theater would fill the emptiness, but sometimes she just felt busy and empty, which inevitably turned to exhaustion. Fatigued as she was, though, sleep still evaded her. Adjusting to life as a single woman was more difficult than she'd expected, and she hadn't expected it to be easy. Even though she didn't want Dalton back, it was still hard to be alone. The relationships that shaped her life had evaporated, and the memories that remained left her hollow and numb. When she came home to her empty apartment after long nights at the theater, all she wanted to do was sleep. But as soon as she laid down in bed, all her brain wanted to do was think. 
Her mind cycled through every painful moment of the last year, rendering the memories in excruciating clarity. Sometimes she stayed late at the theater to escape the heartache of her empty bedroom. After the last showing ended and everyone had gone home, she'd pour some wine into a styrofoam cup and flop down in one of the seats. She'd put on a film, usually something campy, more to fill the silence than to be watched, hoping only for thoughtlessness, for her mind to be empty. When her midnight screening came to an end one night, and she finally felt confident she could go home and sleep without the tedious ruminations, she stood and prepared to lock up. As she made her rounds, she noticed that she'd left the light on in the projection booth. She set down her half-empty cup of wine and made her way up the narrow staircase that led to the booth. When she got inside, she walked over to the far wall and flipped the light switch, immediately drowning the room in darkness. She was eager to leave, but before she could, something stopped her. It was a subtle hissing sound, and it carried on for a few long seconds before Rooney realized what it was. The intercom. She sighed with relief, fearing at first that someone was in the room with her. As she stood there, though, the sound slowly grew louder. To Rooney's horror, a voice came echoing out of the old intercom speaker. I'm watching. I'm watching. I'm watching. The words seemed to play on a loop for several seconds before fading out again. It was a male voice, Rooney could tell. But because of the distortion and static, it was hard for her to define any precise characteristics. In a way, it sounded familiar. It wasn't a comforting kind of familiar, though. The voice sent a piercing chill through Rooney, and she quickly flipped the lights back on. Her horror intensified when she realized the intercom system was a closed circuit, which meant the voice was originating from somewhere inside the building. I'm watching. I'm watching. I'm watching. Rooney slammed the door to the projection booth. Then she pushed one of the hulking boxes of film in front of it. With trembling hands, she pulled out her phone and called Clyde. Shortly after she spoke to him, the voice on the intercom faded out for good, leaving only the soft hiss of static. Clyde arrived 15 minutes later his breath heavy from running up the stairs. He had clearly thrown his clothes on in haste, and his sandy-colored hair was disheveled. With one hand, he gripped the neck of a long wooden baseball bat. When he saw Rooney, he put an arm around her and drew her close. Are you all right? he asked. She nodded, and together they searched every room in the theater. When they had finished their sweep and found no intruders, Rooney shook her head. 
It had to come from somewhere, right? she asked. I don't know, Clyde said. Maybe it was interference, like what happens with baby monitors and stuff. But can that happen on an intercom? Rooney asked. Clyde shrugged. I don't know, he said apprehensively. Look, I hope you're not freaked out by all the stories about this place. Rooney turned. Stories? she asked. Clyde looked away evasively. Tell me, Rooney said. You know, Clyde said, stories. They say the place is haunted. You really haven't heard about that? Rooney shook her head. I even thought about telling you a few times, Clyde said. But I knew about your mom, and I don't know, I just didn't want to seem morbid. So what is it? Rooney asked. They say there's a ghost in here or something? Yeah, basically, Clyde said. The guy that built this place was named William Haskell. He owned a shipyard up in Providence. In the 50s, he moved down here. He began construction soon after, and in 1927, Portside Cinema had its grand opening. There's not a lot of concrete detail about his reasons for wanting to open the theater, but the legends that later surrounded him state that loneliness had driven him to do it. He was in his late 40s when the theater opened, and he had never married, at least not according to public record. It's alleged that he built the theater hoping it would bring him to someone, but he remained alone. There's all kinds of theories as to why he never married, but they're just that, theories. In the end, they say he gave up his search and decided to go out on his own terms. He strung a noose and hung it from one of the rafters, right in the middle of the theater. But he wanted to be surrounded by something beautiful in his last moments, so he threaded a reel of nature footage into the projector. Supposedly, he was found while footage of some grand landscape played on the screen, at the center of which hung the shadow cast by his limp silhouette. All my life, I've heard stories from people who say that at the end of a showing, they'll sometimes catch a glimpse of something. The slender shadow of a hanging form that flashes across the screen just before it goes black. Oh my God, Rooney said. Is that true? No, Clyde insisted. I mean, he was a real guy, yeah but I don't think he really hung himself here. And I certainly don't think this place is haunted. I mean, I've spent plenty of time in here, and I've never seen anything. I think a lot of that stuff is just kids getting bored and making up stories. Every town has urban legends. I guess, Rooney said, wrapping her arms around herself. But what I heard tonight, it was... She looked up at Clyde. You do believe me, right? Of course, he said, but Rooney sensed that he was pandering. And if anything else happens, just call me. I'm only a few minutes away, he said. When they had shut off the lights and locked up, Clyde walked her to her car. You sure you're all right? he asked. 
Rooney nodded. Thanks, she said. She gave him a hug, and then she climbed into her car and set off. As she drove, she chewed her lip. She was embarrassed for having called him in the middle of the night, crying and afraid. She despised the very thought of appearing helpless, especially when the threat failed to materialize, because then she appeared hysterical, too. Still, she couldn't help but think about how concerned Clyde looked when he showed up. The worried look in his eye, the way he pulled her close when he saw her. It was clear that he cared about her. Of course, there were times when Rooney thought about being in a relationship with Clyde. In fact, she'd considered kissing him when she left. But dating still felt like a barrier too great to cross. She couldn't imagine opening herself up to someone, handing her heart to them with the blind hope that they're worthy of her trust. A certain curiosity remained, however, and perhaps even a slight sense of yearning as well. It was yet another thing she wished she could ask her mom about. Sometimes she felt like she was being punished for not being more forthcoming with her. You don't want to ask your mom for help, she thought. Well, you got your wish, because now you can't. I'm watching. I'm watching. I'm watching. When she awoke the following morning, the voice from the intercom was echoing through her head. It was a haunting sound to be confronted with full of dread and detachment. Rooney still found it strangely familiar, though. In a way, it sounded like a distorted version of Dalton's voice. But would Dalton really do that just to scare her? Was he that bitter? He did seem especially livid last time she'd seen him at court. But that was months ago. Before she could slip into a cycle of fixating on Dalton, she got out of bed and made a pot of coffee. She had a few hours before the first matinee, so she decided to take a walk along the river. It was cloudy and humid out, looking as though it might rain. Although she was trying to leave it behind, her experience the night before kept creeping back into her mind. She kept thinking about William Haskell, his lifeless form suspended above the theater seats while picturesque landscape footage flashed across the screen. She felt bad for him, regardless of whether there was any truth to the story. The idea of being remembered as lonely and desperate for a partner was depressing. Rooney wondered why it was assumed that people who live their lives unpaired don't feel whole. But do you feel whole as an unpaired person? She asked herself. When she got to the theater to open up that morning, the atmosphere felt heavy and morose. Every time she glanced at one of the intercom speakers, she was afraid the horrifying voice would come bellowing out. She dreaded the thought of going up to the projection booth, 
but since Clyde wasn't coming in until later that night, she'd have to go up there to start the matinee. When she did, she was relieved to find no ghosts or eerie voices inside. She started the movie, a French film from the 90s called La Haine, and then went back downstairs. She sat at the concession stand and read until the movie ended, at which point she went back up to the booth to shut off the projector. She again wanted to leave as quickly as she could, but this time stopped herself. She didn't want to be afraid in her own theater. It was her crowning achievement, her domain, a place where she should feel at home. She thought that maybe if she stayed there a while, enduring the fear and discomfort, she would regain her sense of peace. After all, there was plenty of reorganizing to do in the projection booth, and she did have an hour until the next show. She decided to start by taking all the old film reels out of the boxes and stacking them on the shelves she'd had built in the booth. That way, she could alphabetize them and keep an inventory. After 45 minutes, she had unloaded all the films and stacked them on the shelves. She didn't have time to alphabetize them, but thankfully nearly all of them were labeled, so that part wouldn't be too difficult. There were three reels, however, that weren't labeled, each of them housed by generic tin cases that were speckled with rust. Rooney opened one, removing the film reel and threading it into the projector. She turned on the arc lamp and hit start. As it began to play, she walked over to the port window so she could see the screen. When she realized what the film contained, she staggered backwards a few steps. Stretched across the screen before her was silent landscape footage. The camera panned over a lush forest, bisected by a slow-moving river. For a few minutes, the shot lingered on the wooded expanse. Then it cut to another shot of towering pines, probably filmed within the same forest. Rooney stared at the incredible scenery, imagining William Haskell turning the film on as he finished tying his noose. She only turned off the footage when she realized it was three minutes until the next showtime. She rushed downstairs to find people lined up at the box office window. Sorry about that, she said, sliding the window open. As the afternoon second show started, it began to rain. The rain continued the rest of the day, and, as was often the case when it rained, the theater got busy. Thankfully, Rooney had hired Ellen and Denise, two girls that went to the local high school, to help out. When they showed up, they took over at the concession stand and the box office, while Rooney retreated to the back office to work on licensing for upcoming screenings. But despite her tenacity, she didn't get much done. She was still trying to wrap her mind around the landscape footage. Did the fact that it was there mean the story about Haskell was true, she wondered? 
When Clyde arrived to help run the projectors later that evening, Rooney considered telling him what she'd found. But she didn't. She didn't want him to think that she believed the story about Haskell, even though she was pretty sure she did. Keeping it internalized didn't exactly serve her, though. While she could keep herself from talking about it, it wasn't as easy to keep herself from thinking about it. Every time she passed one of the intercom speakers or looked at one of the three unlabeled film reels, she felt a raw shiver descend her spine. Her sleeping issue wasn't getting much better either. Even though she sometimes dreaded being alone at the theater as much as she dreaded her empty apartment, she still often remained there until late into the night. On one such night, after a particularly exhausting day, she locked up the theater and put on Mulholland Drive. She sat down in an aisle seat to watch it, but not long after the film began, she drifted off. When she awoke several hours later, she felt dazed. Something about her surroundings didn't look right. After a few confusing seconds, she realized what it was. She wasn't in the same place she'd been when she fell asleep. She was on the floor of the projection booth. She could hear the film projector running, could see the glow of its lamp from the corner of her eye. Slowly, she got to her feet. She approached the port window to see what was playing in the theater below. The air went out of her lungs when she saw a broad, snowy mountainside painted across the screen. It was another one of the landscape reels. As she stared through the small pane of glass at the rugged wilderness on the screen, she felt a sense of panic rising in her. The grip of terror only grew tighter when she realized someone was seated in the theater below, near where she'd been sitting when she'd fallen asleep a few hours before. Because the theater was so dim, she could hardly make out any detail, but she was fairly certain the person was a man. They appeared to have short hair and simple dark clothing. Their silhouette, cast in the soft glow of the projector, sat perfectly motionless. Rooney searched for something heavy that she could use as a weapon, eventually settling for a screwdriver. Emboldened by anger and fear, she flew through the door and down the stairs. She was panting as she stomped into the auditorium, her trembling hand gripping the screwdriver. She turned on the lights, inspecting each row of seats. But to her utter surprise, the room was empty. She looked backstage, searched the other auditorium, even checked the back office. But there was no one to be found. She rushed out into the lobby and yanked on the front door. Just as she'd left it, it was locked. She pulled her phone out thinking first about dialing 911, and then about calling Clyde. But she did neither. 
She didn't want to make another frantic midnight call for what would probably amount to no more than a false alarm. Were her experiences really just false alarms, though? She thought back to the voice from the intercom, the voice that had reminded her of Dalton. Could it really be? She wondered. But what other possibilities were there? Was she supposed to believe there was a ghost in her theater? When she got back to her apartment, it was nearly three in the morning. But the questions eating at her were too urgent to ignore. She grabbed her phone out of her bag and dialed Lauren Hillgrave, the pastry chef, at Neptune. She collapsed onto the sofa, waiting impatiently as it rang. Finally, Lauren answered with a groggy, Hello? Hey, Lauren, it's Rooney. I'm really sorry to be calling so late. She paused for a breath. I know this'll probably sound weird, but... Was Dalton at the restaurant tonight? Dalton? Lauren asked through a yawn. Yeah, Rooney said. I just... I thought I might have seen him somewhere tonight. I just... Don't know if it was him. There was a pause on the line before Lauren's voice returned, sounding a bit more awake now. I guess you haven't heard, she said. Heard what? Rooney asked. He wasn't at the restaurant. No, Lauren said. He's out in California. At a wedding. His wedding. Whitney? Rooney asked faintly. Lauren hesitated just long enough for Rooney to know the answer was yes. I'm so sorry, Lauren said. But Rooney had already stopped listening. She pulled the phone away from her ear and hung it up. She was ashamed to admit it to herself, but she felt like something had broken in her. How did he still have so much power over her? Why did she care what he did or who he spent his life with? Wasn't she done being hurt by him? She wished she could go to a place where nobody could ever cause her pain again. A place where she was alone. Where she could be spared from the inevitable harm of knowing people. As she lay in bed, waiting for the sun to rise, she receded into herself. She could feel the world gradually drifting away as she became surrounded by a deep, peaceful darkness. When she awoke, she was upright, and she could sense something bright was before her. Its radiance glowed through her eyelids, and she slowly drew them open. She was in the front row of the theater, and shining brightly on the screen before her was a majestic mountain pass. It was more of the nature footage, perhaps even from the same reel she'd seen earlier that night. The camera settled on a valley, covered in snow, and set between two immense peaks. Rooney slowly got to her feet, recalling the seemingly illogical words of her mother. I'll see you 
in the valley. She took a step towards the screen. Although she couldn't see any people or even any structures, she felt a welcoming sort of presence in the picture. I'll see you in the valley, she said to herself, stepping closer until she was directly in front of the screen. She lowered her eyes and ran her fingers across its surface, discovering a small tear in the vinyl. Strangely, though, there seemed to be light emanating from the tear, which didn't make any sense, because the only source of light was the projector behind her. She pressed her finger into the tear, and the light grew brighter. There's something back there, she whispered to herself. Pushing another finger inside, she tore the opening wider. The vinyl made a zipping sound as it ripped, and inside the widening slit, Rooney began to see detail. She could see ground behind the screen, covered in snow and reflecting what appeared to be natural sunlight. The air that flowed through was cold, driven by whistling gusts of wind. She pressed her face against the hole and could see the entirety of the landscape portrayed in the film, but it was clear and vivid, not grainy and faded like the footage on the screen. Standing back, she tore the hole wider. She kept tearing until it was a few feet across, wide enough for her to slip through. She swung first one leg and then the other through the opening, feeling the crunch of snow underfoot. She pulled her upper body through and turned to look at the breathtaking view before her. Vast mountain faces encased the valley, each of them blanketed in fine, powdery snow. Rooney looked at the bright blue sky above, felt the icy wind kiss her cheeks, and then, without so much as a glance over her shoulder, she set off, gradually receding from the view of the empty theater. Soon, her figure grew distant on the screen, constituting little more than a small, dark dot in the broad, snowy landscape advancing resolutely toward a place known only to her. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, I just want to make sure you know I have a Patreon. It's $3 per new episode. You get early access to new releases, and you get to listen without ads. You also get access to my audiobook, Solace. It's over eight hours long, sort of a mystery story with some cosmic horror elements wrapped in. It's about a struggling journalist who sort of becomes obsessed with this strange missing persons case he's investigating. The Patreon also has its own RSS feed, so you can listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever podcasting app you like. And there's a link for that in the episode description, as well as in the bio for the show. 
But if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. I've also got t-shirts for sale. There's a few different colors, some pretty awesome designs. And you can find the link for that in the description as well. You can also follow me on social media. I'll include links for that. And if you feel so inclined, please feel free to leave a rating or review wherever you listen. I really appreciate everyone who's taken the time to leave one of those. And that's all I've got for now. So thanks again for listening. Till next time. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.